0: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's thinking maybe I should stop clicking on all the links that Mohammed bin Salman has been texting me, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is David Kay, a clinical professor of law at the University of California at Irvine. He's also the United Nations special rapporteur on freedom of opinion and expression. And last year he wrote a very important book called Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet. David, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: Kara, thanks for having me. I
2: have wanted to ha- talk to you about this for a long time. So as you know, this is all my area that I've been like hammering away on, and you are doing the actual work mm-hmm. uh, to be doing that. The reason I'm having you here is I wanted to have you here for a long time, but y- you you recently came into the news for a very important reason. You were part of the the release of the information about MBS, uh, who is the Saudi prince who runs Saudi Arabia, and and Jeff Bezos's phone, which is mm-hmm. probably one of the weirder stories and more menacing stories, actually. Mm-hmm. If you think the world's richest man can be so easily hacked. I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to get people a background of what you do. Um, besides being a law professor and everything like that, what is—you focus on uh, the area around surveillance and people being
3: tracked. I mean, I do. Yeah. So I monitor freedom of expression right. around the world. So mm-hmm. it's not just digital, yeah. although a big chunk of it has become digital over right. the last several years. But, but yeah, we report to the U.N. on all things freedom of speech related. So
2: tell me how that works. How did you get that? Give me your background. People like to yeah. know people's background.
3: My background, well, it begins over 50 years ago <laughs> in a small town. So I, um, so basically, I I started I was interested in international law, mm-hmm. international issues from a really young age. So I f- focused on that when I was at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first job for 10 years, I worked at the State Department right. as a lawyer. And then I went into academics. I started a human rights program at UCLA and then went to UC Irvine. So, and at the State Department, you no, did what? You worked on
2: just various and sundry.
3: Yeah. I mean, the way lawyers work at the State Department is you rotate around every few years. But I did the main thing that... That I did that I was most interested in was humanitarian law. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of work around the Geneva Conventions after Mm 9-11, which kind of told me I got to get out of this place. Right. Uh, And so I went academic Uh, um, and I went back home to Los Angeles and in L.A. I started the human rights program at UCLA at the Mm -hmm. law school and then went to UC Irvine. Uh, when Erwin Chemerinsky, you know, famous constitutional law mm-hmm. scholar, started up the program there, started up the law school a little over 10 years ago.
2: And to explain, when you were talking about doing the human rights of it's all around the globe, this has been something that's been a long time, mm-hmm. uh, issues. and not you, you, But you've moved into digital, but talk a little bit about why you were interested in that and what you were doing there.
3: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I so I became interested in human rights actually as a teenager. So I grew up in a in a Jewish community in which mm-hmm. Soviet Jewry was the big thing. I mean, if mm-hmm. you go back to the 70s and 80s, the big issue was freedom of movement for the Jews of the Soviet right. Union. And that was that was kind of where I cut my well, they teeth could lead in the activism. Soviet Union, yeah. Exactly. And then um and when I was 16, I went on a trip to Poland, which was it was Solidarity era Poland and visited concentration camps. And I was I was really, at that moment, very focused on, you know, as a kid, uh, sort of what happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it always started with book burnings. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always interested in the fact that repression— I mean, ultimately, the Holocaust began with the repression of the mind, mm-hmm. with the repression of speech. So that's always been kind of core to the way I thought about the world and about human rights, studied it you know, as a kid, uh, through college and law school. And it was something I knew I always wanted to do. I I mean, I was really just in a lucky place when the Human Rights Council, which is the central human rights body of the UN, about six years ago appointed me to actually monitor freedom of expression around the world. They do that for all sorts of areas of human rights, Mm -hmm. and I put in for it, and there's kind of a black box as to how those appointments get made. Mm -hmm. But I was appointed to do that. So for the last six years, I focused on— I mean, I'm most interested in those kinds of threats to freedom of expression, you know, attacks on journalists and others that are almost like canaries in the coal mine for mass atrocities, authoritarianism— And when I started five or six years ago, you could see the beginning of the things that you've been writing about for years. Disinformation on the platforms, attacks on journalists, kind of mob attacks, especially misogynistic ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just—first of all, that's a very interesting area for me, Mm -hmm. you know, how governments are manipulating private actors to do this. But also, um, it was interesting to me from the perspective of what does this pretend about the future and where we're all going. Right. I mean, I didn't predict— Kind of the populism of the moment, certainly not Trump. Mm-hmm. But but I saw what was what was happening with the increasing to, repression. To foment.
2: Yeah. Now when you're when you're making the links between sort of traditional suppression of information and what's happening now, um the old ways of book burnings, um keeping people in line, arresting mm-hmm. people for doing things, suing them. Now that's the latest one, is the suit lawsuits yeah. that are going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. Is it different with digital or just moves to a different uh, battlefield essentially?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally it's the same thing. It's a new battlefield. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, governments forever, you know, leaders forever have always tried to suppress the kind of information that people share. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways easier now, right? (laughs) Because if we think about even um, pre-social media, Mm -hmm. it's easier now compared to then. So in the past when it was a kind of a flat, non-hierarchical, non non concentrated network of networks, mm-hmm. you know, it was really hard. It was kind of whack-a-mole for governments to figure out right. like, where who's do got, they go. Right, who's got the,
2: the mimeograph machine, who's it- got the... The book that gets out. Exactly.
3: Just, yeah, even pre-digital, mm-hmm. right, the idea of samizdat, mm-hmm. you know, right? Explain that graph. for people who don't. Yeah, know. so in the Soviet
2: Union— You know, my, my area of expertise at Georgia University at the Foreign Service School was propaganda. So please
3: explain. Oh, so this is your yes, world. Yes, yes. This is we're why I'm you so back, focused.
2: Kara. This is why I'm so focused on this.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, um, so in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't as if there were, you know, mass— uh, there was mass publishing. Mm-hmm. There would be, you know, one document or one book, like mm-hmm. Solzhenitsyn's Solzhenitsyn. Gulag, Gulag Archipelago or something like that, and there'd be one copy of it, uh, and it would travel around mm-hmm. by by hand among activists, among people, and it was known as Samizdat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, back then it was for for the Soviets or for any actor to just find that particular document and destroy it, that would be one way of ending you know, sort of the information mm-hmm. flow. If you fast forward maybe 20 or 30 years to digital age, but pre-social media, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the blogosphere. It was, right. You know, people would share, but, you know, governments could target particular blogs or particular mm-hmm. outlets, mm-hmm. but they'd be moving all the time. Right. Now, all of that's on social media. So, you know, rather than having to go and find your your blog or this or that, you just go to social media and you say, look, you can't carry this kind of content. It's right. become a lot easier. Mm-hmm. The fundamentals of it aren't any different. Governments want to restrict information mm-hmm. or they want to um, they want to flood the zone with disinformation to crowd out the more so verifiable. that More so that.
2: That's what's, what's and happening in the Philippines and everywhere else.
3: Exactly. And that's I mean, I think that's where they have the tools that hmm. they did, didn't quite have in the past.
2: Right, that they create noise and anger and different a different narrative, a different narrative yeah. which is going on. Yeah, exactly. Which is super interesting. I mean, I was just watching—just in my mind, I was watching a Fox News panel where they were talking about Nancy Pelosi ripping—they were obsessed with this ripping up of the thing, and I was like— he didn't shake her hand, and he just said, son of a bitch, in the, in the East Room. Like, what? Like, mm-hmm. And she's saying he was classless. And I was like, why aren't you reporting? It was really interesting. And I thought, oh, what interesting propaganda to, like, just focus on one thing, even though something's going on over here and ignore it. And it was, it was riveting. And I thought, this is really effective. Yeah. It was really an effective use of cable in this case.
3: I think it is effective. Yeah. Actually, and one of the things that— like I try in my own work to avoid, Mm -hmm. is blaming it all on digital. Right. um, Because obviously, you know, Fox News as state media Mm -hmm. basically has a big role in this. Right. It plays off with digital. Well, they
2: play together. That's what happens. Completely. It goes in a
3: big circle. Completely. But it's not, you know, as bad as, say, disinformation on Facebook is. Mm -hmm. It gets a big boost from... What's happening in, in the mass media right, as well. Right,
2: absolutely. All right, so you were doing this, and you, when you report to the U.N., where does it go? What is You just say this is happening here, this is happening here. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about sort of the hot spots of where the most trouble is and, and what happens to the information that you report to the U.N.?
3: Yeah, so we do a few different kinds of things. So first, just in the U.N., the UN world. Uh, So I directly report to the Human Rights Council. And so twice a year to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly, I provide a a thematic report. Mm -hmm. I have kind of complete freedom to decide what I want to report on. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the years, I've reported, the first report I did was on encryption Mm -hmm. and anonymity and how digital security is essential to protecting human rights around Mm -hmm. the world. And we actually have done, over the years, played a... I don't know if it, I would say significant, but we've tried to play a role in the debates around encryption mm-hmm. to remind people that digital security is also about, um, it's also about human rights and protection. Mm-hmm. So we do those kinds of thematic reporting, and then I communicate directly with governments. So we send letters, they're almost like demand letters, mm-hmm. directly to governments. So say they've detained a journalist, mm-hmm. we'll send them a letter, and it's I don't have any police force with me, right. but, you know, it's a signal to them that somebody's watching. And all of those communications, even though initially they are confidential, we ultimately uh, publish them all. Oftentimes we do press releases on those. So like yesterday we did a press release on um, the criminal complaint against Glenn Greenwald.
2: Mm-hmm, which so, is explain what's going on so people who don't know in Brazil.
3: Yeah, so in Brazil, Glenn Greenwald is— um, You know, he's become quite—like, we know him in the United States as active, but he lives there, and he reports on Brazil. Like, he's an active player in Brazilian journalism, Mm -hmm. and he reported on uh, basically some material that was disclosed to him that identified um, kind of a conspiracy against the past president, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Lulu. And and now the current president, you know, clearly doesn't like that. The current administration doesn't like that kind of disclosure— and uh, there's been a criminal complaint lodged against uh, Meaning he was Greenwald. a journalist who
2: accepted information, uh, yeah. whistleblower information essentially, and yeah. is using it, which is very common. I've used it. Lots of lots of people get memos, internal memos, not quite as exactly. disturbing as that one. Um, and you use them and you never get dinged by the company or anything else. You just never do. And in this case, they just didn't want it out, and so they're trying to blame not just the person who disclosed it, which they're within their purview to do so, Mm -hmm. um, just like they did with uh, Edward Snowden and Mm -hmm. others. But in this case, they're targeting the journalist.
3: Yeah, and and the parallels to Snowden... Um, I mean, not exactly. It would have been like
2: arresting the Washington Post. It would that. have been like exactly. So Bart Guardian. Gelman
3: gets arrested for for Guardian. reporting on it. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Or Glenn yeah. again. Glenn. But but you know, um, the problem with these kinds, there's many many problems with these kinds of laws. I mean, they're mm-hmm. there's, they're designed to limit the flow of information, mm-hmm. but they also don't give uh, either the whistleblower or the journalist the opportunity to make an argument about public interest. So mm-hmm. like Ed Snowden makes the the point that. When he's prosecuted under the Espionage Act, he doesn't have he the opportunity say, yeah. to show, look, law changed because of these disclosures. you got to give me some credit for that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we, we do that kind of work mm-hmm. in raising these issues publicly and with the governments. Um, and then we, we also do country visits. Mm-hmm. So I've gone to places like Turkey, Tajikistan, Mexico, Ecuador, uh, I just went to Ethiopia in December, and we do these kind of concentrated um, investigations, fact-finding in a particular country and say, here's where you're doing fine. We like th- to see this, particularly in transitional countries. We say, look, here's where you need to be doing some more work to improve freedom of expression in mm-hmm. your country.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at the, the whole global – look at globally, where are the real problems from your perspective right now? Yeah. I'm just, you know, recalling what's going on in China today around this doctor who tried mm-hmm. to essentially say there's a virus here and he died of the virus and was actually quite uh, uh, maligned by the government bef- while he was doing it.
3: Yeah, completely. I yeah. mean, that's—
2: Arrested, detained, detained, yes.
3: Right. Was he—, was he Something just, He like detained, there. but he was clearly right. pressured simply for identifying a yes. medical emergency. Yes. Mm-hmm. So— uh, I mean, I think it's, first of all, it's easy to say there are certain trends, mm-hmm. but, you know, I would distinguish different parts of the world. So okay. China, for example, is, um, you know, on the digital side, first of all, it's complicated. You know, there's kind of a rich social media, but mm-hmm. also a censored one, mm-hmm. one that is both a subject to limitation, but also subject to the the kind of flooding the zone that mm-hmm. we were talking about before. I mean, China's at one end of the spectrum, right? The me- There is a media, uh, and actually there's been some interesting reporting over the last few days mm-hmm. about how the media has really taken on the coronavirus in some interesting ways in the country, which mm-hmm. is complicating for the government. But by and large, it's a closed media environment. And that's a trend that we see, I mean, that kind of activity, that kind of repression, we see in a lot of different places. But there's a separate trend in democratic societies, which is... I think especially troubling. I mean, obviously we see it in the United States mm-hmm. with disinformation like we're talking about before. I mean, the disinformation of the Trump administration, which I think many Americans see as, you know, public lying mm-hmm. is is a it's consistent with what we're seeing in places in Europe. We've seen mm-hmm. it in, in Hungary, in Poland, in several other places. We see it in the context of Brexit. Um, the kind of public lying in order to shape the kind of information and the kind of decisions that voters are able to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really troubling. There's issues around the, on uh, digital. So we see mass surveillance and targeted surveillance. You know, so there's distinctions between the mass surveillance in in the United States and, and its allies who, you know, in, in intelligence sharing uh, compared to, say, Saudi Arabia with both mass surveillance, but also this targeted surveillance of the kind that that we could talk about around. Mm-hmm. You know, Bezos is really just a right. We're going to get to that in the next section. I mean, section. there's much. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's oh, real doing it to surveillance to everybody. Exactly of, against the government. Yes, of of real, you know, of dissidents around mm-hmm. the world. So, so there's all sorts of trends taking place, but I think the overall trend is pretty grim. Mm-hmm. And the trend is, you know, on the one hand. Um, fighting back by governments against legitimate journalism. So there's criticism. So criticism of of the government is converted into a crime. Mm -hmm. It's converted or redefined as terrorism. Uh, We see increasing use of digital space. So there have been a lot of laws over the last several years that are framed as cybersecurity laws, but they're actually laws about limiting what you can do online, what you can say, what you can post, what you can like. And those—I mean, those kinds of threats are, are very real, and they go well beyond maybe the, the traditional approach of just targeting journalists. I mean, that targets—that imagines that everybody, in a way, is a journalist. Mm-hmm. Everybody in a sharing economy is—, is, it, is, is reporting is, is reporting, right? So, you know, governments are onto that. I mean, it's, it's a dark time on the digital side for, for people who want to share information and learn about— Different Learn about things. all sorts of things. All right.
2: This is grim. Grim and dark. Okay. This mm-hmm. is perfect, David. Um, we're here with David Kaye, the special reporter for freedom of opinion and expression at the U.N. He's the author of Speech Police, which we're also going to talk about. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this to talk about his involvement with the Bezos phone hack.
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. terms and conditions apply need to hire
1: you need indeed startups you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience giving ambitious companies greater precision control and focus without compromising security open smarter checking and savings accounts control spend optimize cash flow and close the books in record time Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: We're here with David Kay. He is a, an author, and he also works for the UN around f- uh, freedom of expression and opinion, and he is also a professor, um, a law professor. Uh, David, we were just talking about the idea of it being grim. Let's walk us through your involvement in the Bezos thing, because even though it was such a bizarre thing, but it, it sort of it, it encapsulates what's going on. The world's richest man was hacked— by another rich man Mm -hmm. um, who was actually targeting him because he owns the Washington Post and all kinds of things. Talk a little bit of what happened here, how you all
3: got involved. Yeah, so— I think—I mean, a lot of people know about uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. And, um, Journalist
2: for the—wrote for The Washington Post.
3: Exactly, yeah. A
2: dissident—not not the worst dissident in Saudi Arabia, not the most active, but he was very uh, outspoken about the Saudi government.
3: Exactly. I mean, Jamal, in the past, was actually a friend of the House That's of right. Saud. Very much, um, you know, believed in it as, you know, a stable force in Saudi Arabia so It was so fair
2: forth. criticism he was doing of the
3: country. Totally fair criticism— he, um, I mean, in his re- his reporting, he was becoming more and more critical. He was indeed, right. So, in the year before um, he was he was murdered, his. Um, you know, his columns took a pretty yes. rough turn against yeah. against us, and in particular against the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And the behaviors
2: that were happening. I don't mean to say he wasn't the worst dissonant. He wasn't the most way out and He was very—trying yeah. to change the society with criticism, with exactly. fair criticism.
3: He's, he wasn't a radical. Right, exactly. You know, he wasn't a flamethrower yeah. by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, So after his murder, both Agnes Calamard, who's the special rapporteur on extrajudicial killings, Mm -hmm. um, both she and I had gotten involved in, you know, at first we were urging the UN, basically the secretary general, to launch a commission of inquiry or at least appoint a group of experts Mm -hmm. to investigate how it was and who was responsible for murdering Jamal Khashoggi in the Turkish, um, in you know, in, in the, the Turkish Saudi city of Istanbul, right. in the Saudi consulate, right. which is, you know, makes it an unusual set of circumstances. It's right. not our normal, you know, mm-hmm. killing of a journalist. So, and, and then Agnes went on to do her own specific investigation of the killing, and, and her conclusion was, you know, basically— the crown prince was as behind it. As was all
2: it. our own intelligence officials, everybody. Exactly.
3: Right. So, okay, so that's on one track. Um, and as part of her investigation, she saw that there was considerable surveillance of people around Jamal Khashoggi. So mm-hmm. dissidents, um, activists, journalists mm-hmm. who were associated with him. And it was clear that they had been, and Citizen Lab, a an organization based at the University of Toronto that does a lot of amazing forensic work and advocacy, It had identified the—well, there's this Israeli company that makes this malware, this spyware called Pegasus Mm -hmm. um, that is a a tool for really invasive, intrusive surveillance.
2: Uh, Via phones.
3: Via phones, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's happening on one track. On on another track, I did a lot of work on the private surveillance industry— More generally, I mean, it's an industry that basically operates without constraint. Mm -hmm. So NSO Group is just one instance. There's Hacking Team, there's Gamma Group, FinFisher, there's—it's actually probably— uh, we only see the tip of the iceberg, right? It's and they're
2: amazing. being hired across the globe. You've read about them in in book, in like sci, in books, you know, spy thrillers. But exactly. they're private companies that are hired to do surveillance by governments or individuals or co- companies or things like that. And there's been a yeah. huge growth them using digital means.
3: Completely. And there's a legitimacy to it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a legitimacy to saying, you know, in the in the context of fighting against terrorism mm-hmm. or violent crime or right. Um, you know, uh, child abuse and kidnapping, there's a completely legitimate use as long as it's constrained by rule of law, meaning, you know, warrants, judicial warrants for the use of those tools. There's a legitimate place for these and actually a a pretty important one. The problem is that these tools are abused around the world against journalists, against activists and human rights defenders and dissidents. So, So I did a report last year that focused on the on the industry, and I basically called for a moratorium on the transfer of this technology, at least until there's a legal framework around its mm-hmm. transfer and constraint on its use. So, you know, basically that put on yes, and I, it gave us some profile on these kinds of issues, mm-hmm. and so we were uh, we were basically handed uh, this forensic report that looked at um, this allegation that Jeff Bezos had Head been hacked head of Amazon, had been hacked, not not just by Saudi Arabia, because that had been out there. His chief of security had made this allegation about a year ago, I think in, mm-hmm. in February or March last year, um, but actually tied it directly to interactions with uh, the crown prince, with mm-hmm. MBS himself.
2: All right, so lay this out, how this happened. This was a report that Ga- Gavin— um I'm sorry, his last name. Gavin DeBecker. DeBecker, who Mm -hmm. worked as a security head for Jeff Bezos. You'd imagine the World's Rich Man has security around him. For sure. um, And you'd imagine he would be safe because he's the World's Rich Man. But indeed, that is not the case. Um, And there's all kinds of points of uh, vulnerability. There's a lawsuit right now from his brother-in-law, who seems to have taken his pictures and given them to the National Enquirer from what he it looks like that's yeah. what happened. That's what mm-hmm. the National Enquirer said happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what Jeff Bezos thinks. Um, and his sister also thinks that, who who's dating Jeff Bezos. Um, but th- that that's a weird point of vulnerability. That's a strange yeah. little side note. But this yeah. is a real—this is someone who was texting using WhatsApp. Is that correct? Yeah.
3: So what happened was—it's um, when you say WhatsApp and my WhatsApp goes <laughs> off. <often, laughs> you have this magic I never ability. use WhatsApp. It's owned by so, Facebook. So— um, so basically what happened was, people might remember that MBS did this national tour. He came to the United States. He, he spent did. like three weeks. He
2: was in Silicon Valley quite a bit.
3: Exactly. He went to the Valley. There's pictures of him with, I think, with Sergey Brin. And so he comes to Los Angeles. I was invited
2: to something. I'm like, no way I'm going there.
3: Yeah. Well, no you know. way. You could have had this. Uh, you could have been a part of this story. No, thank right? you.
2: Yeah. I was like, these people were just, anyway, they're sucks. Well, he
3: met with, he did meet with. You know, apart from you, he met with everybody. Oh, he wasn't seems gonna meet with like- me. It was just some event, some event that he yeah. Was well, and you might not have done what Jeff Bezos did, which was they were at a dinner mm-hmm. and they exchanged numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, and MBS and and Bezos, they're like, here, let's if we, we talk. can be in touch. Yeah, and, which and, is know- what,
2: by the way, just so I'm gonna take a moment. Rich people do this all the time. They yeah. like get they get together at these dinners, and it's like I was at one with Jeff Bezos and Rupert Murdoch, and you know, all of them back in the day, and they all just. They socialize. They socialize in this weird. It's always mm. strange and weird, but they do that. And they do. They they like to contact each other. Yeah, you know, it via, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Yeah. if I need I mean, to talk to you about Saudi Arabia, we might start a Amazon thing. Yeah, just to share, share, and care, yeah, yeah. You know, right. whatever. You know, Pass. billionaires
3: have problems too. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Know, who else are they going to talk to? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so they share numbers and um, and they actually you know do a quick hey it's it's Bezos, hey it's MBS kind of thing. Mm. So, um, what happens is about a month later, and I can't say that MBS himself sent this. What we know is that a video was sent from the account of MBS Mm -hmm. to Bezos, and this forensic report shows how within hours of the sending of this video, there's this massive spike in exfiltration, the taking out of data mm-hmm. from the phone to some unknown location. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should emphasize the report that we got was interim. It's not a conclusive report. It mm-hmm. basically says we have medium to high confidence that it was this vector, the use of this video. The single video, yeah. That infected Jeff Bezos' phone. And, and what they show in this forensic analysis is there was a baseline of very little data coming out of uh, of Bezos' phone mm-hmm. over time, historically. Right. And then suddenly it spiked up like 29,000%. Mm-hmm. And, and you would see these spikes over the course of a couple of months, um, or actually over the course of a year, leading to one spike that was like four gigabytes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bezos didn't use iCloud to back up. So there wasn't really another explanation for this other than it being a hack and mm-hmm. the taking of information. So from our perspective— And this was
2: his personal phone. This, this is,
3: is his personal phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if he used other phones or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of these you mm-hmm. know, people have many, many phones. Right. But this was his personal phone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from from our perspective, what we do in the UN, when we get information like that— we first we communicate with the government, mm-hmm. and which is what we did. We sent a letter to the Saudis mm-hmm. and said we're um, we've received this information. Uh, if it's true, this raises really grave concerns about freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, we laid out you know the relationship between Bezos and the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, the connections between um, you know this particular hack or allegation of a hack. And the hacks that have been alleged about the people around Khashoggi. Right. So um,
2: And Jeff Bezos is around Khashoggi. Just for those who don't know, yeah. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. And there's been a lot of noise because it's been—Trump like, has attacked it. Uh, Trump is very exactly. close to MBS. So it's alleged that they're trying to get at Jeff Bezos in some fashion because yeah. they're angry about um, his— his paper, his ownership of the paper.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. And that's—so from our perspective, like, we're not saying to either the Saudis or to the public—so we did a public statement about Mm -hmm. this—we're not saying this is conclusive evidence, but there is enough here, one, that the Saudis have some questions to answer, and Mm -hmm. it certainly looks like they targeted Bezos. And in light of the—kind of the entirety of the relationship between Bezos and the Post, the Post and Jamal Khashoggi, the allegations and demonstration of other hacking— we need information but also it's the kind of set of allegations that we regularly go public with because mm-hmm. people need to know about the risks mm-hmm. now it may ultimately be that there's some other explanation i doubt it when you look at the report and you look at the timeline mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine any other explanation but we're we're human rights fact finders we're open to receiving other information mm-hmm.
2: But so, but it's it's
3: really concerning.
2: Absolutely. So, explain to me why why this is important. I mean, it's it's such a bizarre stream of events. But I think here's the world's richest man being targeted and successfully uh, at some point. Whatever they pulled out from the phone, yeah. um, also that everybody's vul- vulnerable and and he has probably the most. Would assume would have. I don't necessarily assume he has the best security, but he should. For sure. Mm-hmm. And that this is—it's as easy as putting a video. Now, what I understand is he didn't even have to watch the video, correct? Did he click on it? He did not. I,
3: you know, the report doesn't make that yeah, part clear, right. but it was a no-click
2: intrusion. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So it just has to be sent. Yeah, exactly. So explain how that works.
3: Okay, so actually there's a separate track here, mm-hmm. uh, which is— WhatsApp was vulnerable to exactly this kind of... It was basically WhatsApp and this iOS. This is owned by Facebook. Let's yeah. add another wrinkle to it. Right, WhatsApp. right. So here's our WhatsApp Facebook link, but there's also an iOS link. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, the vulnerability here, which was that you didn't even have to answer your phone, you didn't even have to click on the video in order for it to um, for it to infect your phone. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, that's not just WhatsApp. It's also Everything. a device security problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and actually, since the time of the, the Bezos hack, WhatsApp and Facebook uh, have sued the NSO group, mm-hmm. uh, this surveillance company in Israel, for doing exactly this, for creating this software that targets the platform in order to mm-hmm. create these kinds of intrusions. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I can't really explain the technical side of how right. this happened, but, but basically that's how, um, you know, this video would infect this phone. And I think— I mean, your point is exactly right. So, it's Bezos. You know, he's a rich guy. I mean, the richest guy. Nobody needs to be crying crocodile tears over him in part- because of him. Mm-hmm. But it, he owned the Washington Post. He owns. And the he owns the Washington Post. And the suggestion that anybody, even somebody at his level, could be subject to this kind of intrusion. Mm-hmm. I think is is really shocking. shocking. It's really disturbing. And I, I mean, I see the private surveillance industry generally, even if, and this is the thing, this isn't necessarily that your average you know, iPhone user cares that much about for their own, but this is about the fundamental pillars of our democratic life. And if governments are able to target owners of the media or journalists or mm-hmm. activists, that that is a direct threat to the way you know we get information the way we share information and and really to the some democratic fundamentals for us so mm-hmm. it's not that I'm concerned about Bezos per se I'm concerned about the whole
1: Package of things I'm that concerned are about by Bezos.
2: If they can get him, they can get everybody. Everybody gets got, yeah. essentially. There's no protection for anybody, especially dissidents who are incredibly vulnerable in terms of being trackable, in terms of being uh, able to find out. And one of the things that we'll never find out about Jamil Khashoggi is how much tracking they did of him in order to get him there. Yeah, Um, which is which is interesting, and then you start to think about where you can travel, where you can, uh, even if you're even making comments. I mean, when I make comments about the Saudis being thugs and they Silicon Valley shouldn't take money, I'm like, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia. There's Mm -hmm. no way I'm going to Saudi. You know what I mean? I'm not going to show up in places I'm invited. You know, and I'm like nobody. Like, you know what I mean? You just think about you know the ability to make valid criticisms about, uh, you know, uh, uh, autocratic regimes. Completely. Makes it, it chills. It's a chilling thing, which I think is, is disturbing I to I a lot of people.
3: Totally agree. And on top of this, I think what's just really outrageous is how so many people, so many governments mm-hmm. and so many companies continue to engage with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Saudis hosted a cybersecurity event just this week. Mm-hmm. They host this, you know, Davos in the desert yes. every year, yeah. and this, which is actually something— that Bezos, uh, after the Khashoggi murder, he decided he wasn't going to go to— it wasn't a public mm-hmm. thing, yeah. right. but that really ticked off MBS. Yes. So, a lot
2: of people didn't go for one year, and then they all came back. Now, I'm guessing Bezos isn't coming back. No, but, he's not going back. Yeah. yeah. But,
3: but this is the problem, is yeah. that, you know, these things happen, and what's the reaction? So I'm just, you know, a U.N. reporter, basically, right. on these things. But governments keep going. Governments keep— uh, I mean, they continue to fail to regulate this industry. Mm-hmm. and um and they continue to let basically to let MBS be treated as if he's just another member of, you know, the you know, the ruling class of the world. right. And that's to me, that's really disturbing. Obviously, it connects back to something you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier, which is, you know, the connections between Trump and the Trump administration and and the Saudis. But, you know, frankly, you know, Democratic and Republican governments 100%. have always Silicon been Valley. in this, yeah. Silicon
2: Valley takes yeah. so much money. I mean, through the Vision Front for SoftBank, Completely. they're taking this money and, the, and they're willingly doing it without without. it. We're going to get back to what we do about this. When we get back, we're here with David Kay. He's the special reporter for Freedom of Opinion at the U.N. and the author of Speech Police. We're going to talk about that in a second when we get back.
4: Be the most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green.bank Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you.
2: We're here with David Kay. He's the special reporter for Freedom Opinion and Expression at the UN. He's the author of Speech Police. So this sort of paints a pretty ugly picture of these companies sort of operating freely all over the globe, being hired by governments, and and the vulnerability of these phones, which everybody uses. Let's talk a little bit about— what we do about it? Is mm-hmm. there anything? Given that you carry these things around now, I have shut down every single thing on this phone that could possibly be tracked. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this has been has is yeah. easily hacked. What I'm carrying, it, yeah. you know, I have no question that it's easily hacked, and there's nothing I can do about it. Is there something average citizens and people who are more high journalists or you know people who are pushing back like Bezos yeah. um, can do? So, so I mean, put it in like a plastic bag and like a right, silver exactly. bag
3: and. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the problem, in part, is that we're all connected to other people. And Mm -hmm. so we rely on everybody's security around us. Mm -hmm. So, And this was one of the Jamal Khashoggi issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, in part, I think what we think is that Mm -hmm. he was tracked, in part, by the— intrusion into the people around him, not necessarily him. Right,
2: right, if you're with someone
3: else. So, what, um, but also just who you're texting with and what you're right. saying to, so you, like, your device might be secure, but you don't know about the people yeah. that you're connected you know, with. You I
2: was, I was thinking about this when I turned off all my mapping. I, I've turned it off all the time, and mm. I only allow it to go on for a second, or something like that. Although, me searching tells them where I am, but it doesn't quite tell them where I actually am. Yeah. Um, but then I was like, my girlfriend's is still on, so I'm usually with her. Exactly. So it So, I was like, turn your Off, she's like, I don't want to. I'm like, no, you have to because then they can track me. And so you become this sort of strange, like, paranoid person. You do,
3: and I mean, the problem of this for me is that, you know, the the system, this world, and protection relies on our own individual initiative, Mm -hmm. which is hard because you know these phones, tablets, computers. There's so much convenience, and also. Um, yeah. you know, uh, Julianne Gwynn wrote this book, Dragnet mm-hmm. Nation, a few years sure ago. Sure, she did. You know, she tried to go off the grid. It's almost impossible. impossible. And so, so I think um, there are some things we can do. I mean, journalists, all journalists should know how to use things like Signal, which is, you know, very secure um, messaging. They should know how to use... Um, Things like Tor, in mm-hmm. order to do anonymized searches, mm-hmm. um, SecureDrop. I mean, there's a range of things that people need to do in the profession in order to protect their sources. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's well. You would know better than I do, but my impression is that that isn't widely adopted enough. It isn't.
2: I use them, but yes, but they're not. People don't do them at all. People no. don't do them enough, no. and so and then they use WhatsApp, which I, I you I see using it. I don't use it. It's from Facebook. I don't. I'm sorry. I just don't. I know it's encrypted. I just yeah. don't I don't care.
3: No, don't care. The, so the thing f- for WhatsApp is um pretty much everybody I work with outside the United States uses it. So right. it becomes a kind yes, of yes. a crutch. I mean
2: right. I I tend to I, I don't know. I'm mind. not alleging that Facebook is s- sly on you. I just yeah. I don't know. I just yeah. don't even want to guess. I don't even want to take the risk. It yeah, no, crazy. I totally
3: understand that. Right. But so There are other things. So I actually think there should be a kind of movement. Mm -hmm. People have been talking about this for years, but there should be a movement of, you know, encryption and the use of encrypted technologies Mm -hmm. generally. I think some of the companies—I mean, Apple has moved into this space in a pretty productive way, Mm -hmm. at least domestically. I wouldn't say that they're the best actor when it comes to dealing with China. Right. Um, So it's kind of market-specific in a way, Mm but— the more people who use these kinds of tools, mm-hmm. the more there's a generic or a generalized security for everybody. We'll talk everybody. about Apple
2: and what's happened recently around mm-hmm. encryption, since encryption was an area though, mm-hmm. that you that is important. Um, Apple just. Um, resisted a government inquiry into opening up an iPhone. It's around encryption. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it gave a lot of information up of this from iCloud, the stuff that was demanded by Warrant, yeah. um, which it does, which mm-hmm. it always does. You're right. They, it's quite, sort of a, a mixed bag with Apple because they are defending encryption and did previously yeah. with the Obama administration at the same time these companies can't resist for too long, essentially, mm-hmm. if they want other things. They ha- there's a lot of pressure to bear on them.
3: Yeah, it's true. I mean, luckily, I mean, after the Snowden revelations, really, mm-hmm. there was a, a sense of common cause among many of the companies. And, yeah, the companies. And, you know, companies. in the few years after 2013— kind of the, the mass move to HTTPS mm-hmm. on websites was also amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. there,
2: there are a lot of good this things. This is a, protect, a more protected—explain uh, what it is. Well,
3: H, as compared to HTTP, mm-hmm. it's just a protocol that is secure. It's an mm-hmm. encrypted connection with mm-hmm. your website. I mean, the metadata is is visible. In other words, um, the fact that I'm, seeking, I'm going to the New York Times website mm-hmm. is known, but what I'm actually looking at at the Times right. site is not. Right. So— um, so, that, I mean, there are some good things. I don't want to paint a totally grim picture. I mm-hmm. mean, some of the companies, particularly on the device side, I think have moved to um, to a kind of a privacy, uh, maybe a, a centerpiece of their yes. business model. Right. That's really good. And, mm-hmm. and it's not just privacy for privacy's sake. It's privacy for all of our communications, for you know for journalists for activists and just for you and i or like mm-hmm. me to contact my spouse or you mm-hmm. yours and you know that that part is really that's that's a good sign and it's a defense against at least kind of low hanging fruit right. surveillance
2: right absolutely
3: so that's a that's a good thing but but generally speaking you know i mean we're talking about or at least we've been talking about surveillance at this targeted level But, you know, at the end of the day, the companies are all collecting huge amounts of information about us. And are we really certain that governments aren't going to get access to that information? I'm certain they will. Yeah. So that's a big threat. I mean, it's a threat enough that the companies have that access to Mm -hmm. us, which, you know, in the United States, we haven't regulated at all. Right. I mean, I actually do think Europe will regulate and that's going to affect us. I mean, GDPR is already having that effect the, the um, general data protection regulation in, in the European Union. But um, but generally speaking, we're living in a surveillance society. We're Absolutely. all surveilled. And I don't think we have any, particularly when you think about this government today, the Trump administration, would they resist using these tools in order to get no. at their enemies? None no. of them would.
2: Let me just say they would be more right. apparent about it. They'd be more explicit about it.
3: Completely. Because they
2: do everything out in the open. Yeah. All their corruption is True. in and it was i was talking to an investigative reporter yesterday carol lenig who wrote lenig who wrote the book on trump and I said, what's it like to be an investigative reporter when they do their crimes out in the open? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't even have to dig." Like, she's like, I yeah. know, it's weird. It's just right there. The pile yeah. of crap is just right there, essentially. Yeah. But um, no, no, no governments. I think every government constantly overreaches e- all the time. And if they can yeah. get access to information, there's no government that doesn't
3: do this. Um,
2: that's true. It, there just isn't. Like, and as I much as we what, pretend and romanticize our previous I governments, agree. they don't. They I agree. Surveil.
3: Well, and, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the last—I mean, the Obama administration the was— surveyed. Balance. Fighting on and fighting on encryption, right? They were, you know, fighting on I this, a long this very basic tool.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well, he was pro encryption until he was anti encryption. That's what my argument with him was, you know. And he was. I, I get that you see certain things and you see the world as an ugly place when you get much more information. Yeah. but it, 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 it wasn't an excuse. I was like, you changed, so just say you changed, like, and explain to me why that was.
3: And I, I think th- I think that's right. And I think governments all. I mean, or we should say maybe like politicians mm-hmm. who come in with this rosy view, like we're going to protect this and that. Mm-hmm. And then they get in. I mean, it's a Washington problem, too. Mm-hmm. It's like you get into this security environment and you're convinced about the darkness of the world. Mm-hmm. But but it's a narrow way of thinking about security. Right. You Absolutely. Because all of our security is at risk and not just at risk from you know, the prying eyes of our neighbors, but mm-hmm. from criminals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a real, an insecure internet is terrible for everybody. Absolutely. So, you know,
2: certain people like Ash Carter and others did believe in it because yeah. he understands the importance of, of that. Exactly. What's interesting to me is is what, so who protects us? Are these companies? Because we're being protected by companies, which I think, you know, I had an argument with one of the founders of Google about that, and I was very tough on them about having control of all search, and I said, this is an enormous amount of data you have on people you understand, and you're responsible for that in in the hands of the wrong people and he and he I forget which one it was. He goes, "I'm a nice person," and I said, "Yeah, but what, what happens when a nice, not such a nice person, gets their hands on this?" Yeah, exactly. Well, that's not going to happen. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" I said, "If you uh, you understand the history of the world, nice and not nice people get their hands on stuff like this all the time." And so, what what do we do in this situation? Because the government's interests are in collecting more information. The company's interests are in collecting more information. And MBS, whatever the hell he's up to out in Saudi Arabia, he definitely wants to collect and then mm-hmm. suppress. What do you do in this environment? How do you resist that? What are the ways people can do that?
3: I, I mean, at the end of the day, the tool is law. You know, it's law and regulation, mm-hmm. and um, and we have very little of it. I mean, there, none. there were, you we have you, none. We have no. I mean, there was this a slight move after the Snowden revelations to deal with some of the, the worst abuses. Yes, yes. But but you're right. There's no regulation. And it's, I mean, it's a particularly American problem. You mm-hmm. know, we think that the companies will self-regulate and that's the way the market will fix this. Mm-hmm. But we're not in an environment of, of a competitive market. Mm-hmm. So there's no competition to Google. I mean, as much as we like, like I use DuckDuckGo every mm-hmm. so often because it doesn't collect information mm-hmm. on my searches. But you know everybody's using google it's not behavioral it's it's uh, it's contextual but go ahead yeah Sorry. yeah right right exactly so so i think i mean we need law we need regulation we need a, a change in the way we think in the united states about the power of regulation it, <laughs> you know Ever since the 80s, we've had this, you know, anything the government does to regulate is evil. And, and it hurts and, innovation. And it hurts innovation and all that. But I don't think we're in that space anymore. So what
2: do we need? Talk about, let's finish up talking about what we, what are the, and what are the low-hanging fruit people can do to, to protect themselves? Yeah. Um, because it really is a protect yourself kind mm-hmm. of situation. Like, you're not, you're, you're on your own in yeah. a lot of
3: ways. I mean, part of the problem with say, giving a generic answer is, mm-hmm. you know, different people have different, like, threats perceptions and, and actual threats against them. Like some people, they're happy to share everything. And that's, for them, that's fine. I Mm -hmm. mean, they should recognize the risks, there Mm -hmm. needs to be much more education about the risks of sharing. And the risk, I mean, and by sharing, I mean, just keeping on your phone location data, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there is a risk inherent in that. Mm -hmm. If you understand it, and you still make the choice Fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the excuse of I've got nothing to hide. Yeah. Exactly. We did an interesting thing at the New York Times. We this guy's like I've got nothing to hide, and then we tracked his face everywhere, and he's like, "What?" And yeah. I was like, oh, we well, can track your face everywhere.
3: Well, facial recognition, yeah. I think, will will really freak people out, mm-hmm. and that is an important part of it. I mean, we get, you know, the the data showing the hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures that are taken mm-hmm. of us every day. Yeah. Um, you know that that should be really concerning to people, but that also highlights how massive a problem this is. Mm-hmm. This isn't just a problem of our devices; mm-hmm. it's a problem of public space and public cameras. And, we have no, and public cameras, and we have no, we have no regulatory. There's no overarching approach that says privacy is essential to a democratic society, mm-hmm. as it should be in the United States, as Europe has has been recognizing for several years. And we need to constrain the companies and their collection, and we need to constrain our government in its use of that data. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything like that, so we we really do need a massive movement on that. I mean, we're so—we're just in this moment where everything seems grim, from climate change, you know, to the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. to to social media, Mm -hmm. everything. But this has to be a central piece. It
2: really does. I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get people— aware of it. I keep calling yeah. them cheap dates. That seems to get to them. I'm like, you, t- you took a map and a, you know, uh, an ability to look up when someone died and, yeah. you know, some free email, and they get billions, and you're not a billionaire like they are. Like, yeah. you're a cheap date. You're essentially, and they seem to, people seem to be like, oh, well, maybe I am. Like,
3: True. They think it's free. Yeah. People, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying they, like, yeah. I feel like it's free yeah. every time I oh, use I don't this. I it's free. But, like, in my day-to-day life, I don't rethink. I mean, I'm I'm pretty safe on mm-hmm. my phone, but I still have to use things. Like if I have to go somewhere, I I, I don't think about it mm-hmm. as a cost. Right. But it's always a cost, and mm-hmm. people need to understand that.
2: All right. So what's next for you? What are you studying next? Let's finish up. What are you? What are? You, what is your next report on?
3: So I am actually coming to the end of my. We call it a mandate. Mm-hmm. So I'll be done in July. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a report that looks at like a global look at trends, so the kinds of things we've been talking mm-hmm. about. And I'm doing two specific reports, one on artistic freedom of expression, mm-hmm. so basically how the digital age has interfered with,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, but also advanced right. um, so artistic people can freedom. Get a,
2: people can get seen more, and yeah. then at the same time they can get controlled
3: more. It's not all a negative story. No. And then the last report will be on academic freedom, Which so is- kind of the interaction between or the intersection of the digital and... You know, academic, we're actually still scoping out because academic freedom can mean a lot. It can mean campus speech and protest. It can mean the way in which, for example, if you're teaching, if you're a scholar of something in China or Turkey right now, that could, you could lose your job just because of the nature of the thing that you're studying. Right. Um, so, you know, we're trying to figure out what exactly is the core issue for freedom of expression and academic freedom right now. But those are the two thematic areas. And then we're doing continuing to do work on on the private surveillance industry. I mean, mm-hmm. my big push there is we need law. Mm-hmm. You know, we need law at the local or national levels, but we especially need a global framework for, to, to for be that. To monitoring these companies yeah. that are being hired
2: by lots of different people. Yeah, exactly. Um, then I'd be remiss. I want to finish up the, the other day. <laughs> Recently, Mark Zuckerberg, I was at his speech, the paid versus free speech speech at Georgetown, and then he oh, did yeah. this. Um, I'm I'm all about free expression. Mm-hmm. How do you react to that? Him wrapping himself in the cloak of free expression. You're someone who—this is an important issue. Yeah. And I think you're committed to this idea.
3: Completely. I mean, I had a pretty negative reaction to his speech. Mm-hmm. This was the one— um, At like, Georgetown, when he, he was conflating
2: year. free speech with paid speech. But,
3: you know, whatever. I, I mean, I—so uh, there's some good things right now that are happening in social media space. Mm-hmm. I should start with the good. Mm-hmm. It's like a rhetorical. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some good stuff happening. One of them is— I think th- my hope is that this this um, the Facebook move to this content moderation board, mm-hmm. which is not a bad idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, my I hope not. I wrote that.
2: Mm-hmm. I paid them one compliment this year about that. It's, it's not a bad idea, or but it could become a Potemkin village. That's my feeling.
3: This is the problem. So yeah. we're actually. I'm going to be monitoring that mm-hmm. over the next year. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 my hope is that that is a kind of spur to cross industry regulation, and mm-hmm. if that. You, I could imagine several different uh, ways of doing that. I mean, one could be direct government regulation. Mm-hmm. That concerns me a bit mm-hmm. because government regulation of content historically is always yes. bad. It always leads to bad places. But what I do think we could have regulation around, and it may be that that what Facebook is doing might might convince people this is important. Is we can have regulation around transparency. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a lot more disclosure about and not just Facebook. Collecting. What they're collecting, how they make the decisions around content, who's making the decisions around content. Um, I mean, the companies control so much public speech Mm -hmm. and they control the public square in so Mm -hmm. many places around the world. And yet people who are subject to that regulation know virtually nothing Mm -hmm. about how that's done. So I think there should be just much more disclosure about... I think of it like a case law. Mm -hmm. I mean, the companies should be disclosing. Now, there'll be privacy issues, so they can't disclose everything about every case, Mm -hmm. but they should be disclosing much more about the content decisions that they're making. Mm -hmm. Because right now we operate, it's almost like government. You know, when government has a secrecy claim, they say, trust us. Mm -hmm. That's what the companies are saying too. And I think that's, we're like way past that. You know, we, we can't trust the companies. We need to evaluate, we need oversight whether that's governmental or you know around in the commonwealth part of the world we have things called press councils which are basically mm-hmm. public private over, oversight yes. of of journalism mm-hmm. we could use something like that too in in my book i kind of move in that direction because i think ultimately the big dis, the big question around these issues is who's going to decide these questions of content i'm uncomfortable with it being the companies I'm but also uncomfortable being, with being in government. So we need to figure out a way to handle that. And they're doing it anyway. That.
2: They're doing it. They're all making decisions they're all anyway doing all day. It. So would you serve on the Facebook council? Have you been asked?
3: Um, I don't think I've been asked, um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm independent. So why
2: wouldn't you if you think it's a good idea?
3: I. It's not a—it's more of a personal thing. I just have other huh. things I want to be doing
2: right. right now.
3: I mean, I'm interested in the cross-industry approach.
2: Me. They haven't asked me.
3: They haven't. No. Would you do it? Yes, I would. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yes, just to be watching them, yeah.
3: So I think it would be valuable. So we, mm-hmm. we started, we got, we have a grant from the Knight Foundation mm-hmm. at, at UC Irvine to mm-hmm. actually do um, kind of an oversight study. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be, Good. We'll, we'll be kind of doing the oversight the of the oversight. oversight. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk to them and make sure that we can mm-hmm. do the kinds of things necessary. You know, like trial monitoring mm-hmm. around the world? Right. We'll be doing something like well, that. Well, that
2: seems great. I think you'd be great running it, actually. So if they're really serious, they will get serious people to be doing this that will give them a pain in the ass. And uh, yeah. I'm guessing they won't.
3: Well, I I mean, I have talked to them. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, they've hired an executive director. Yes, they have. And the executive director was the director of Article 19, which is mm-hmm. it's like the Human Rights Watch of freedom of expression mm-hmm. around the world, a very important organization. So his bona fides on freedom of expression are really, I mean, unassailable. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the problem is the harms— on the platform are not just speech harms. You know, the harassment, the the tracking, the privacy issues. So there's a lot going on there, but I think that was a good step. Mm -hmm. I think that... That what we what everybody should be looking at is who actually serves on this board. Mm-hmm. Presumably there'll be a chair or two. Right. My hope is that they're not American, mm-hmm. that they come from, you know what we call the global south, mm-hmm. that there's diversity within the board, that it's right. you know, so somebody from Myanmar or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh Absolutely. can have the same kind of input. And I also think that there needs to be much more ownership of decision making. At the local level. Right. I, I mean, I, I think of it this way. I think of, like, imagine if there were no newspapers in the United States, which sadly some which days is it feels like we're Facebook heading— Which is what Facebook
2: and everywhere they are.
3: Exactly. So think about, like, if you were in Los Angeles and there was only the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Great newspaper, right? Like, fabulous newspaper. But I still want a local paper right. to be, you know, conveying to me what's happening in my city. Mm-hmm. And I think Facebook has that same problem. They're mm-hmm. everywhere— But like, what's the local connection? What's the ability of local actors to actually Mm -hmm. get local information That is um, evaluated according to, you know, it can be human rights standards, Mm -hmm. but but with like a local flavor to it. That doesn't really exist right now.
2: And and it's a question of responsibility. It's like, like, look, this was just a story about the vaxxers. Like this woman gave her kid potatoes, a kid died or whatever. It was on an anti-vax group on Facebook. And Facebook's been trying to get rid of them, but they just have to get rid of them. Like they're trying, they can't try to get rid of them. They have to get rid of these groups, um, Mm -hmm. which are spreading false information. And to hide behind freedom of speech in this case. It's irresponsible.
3: It's well, fine. especially on the paid side. Yeah, I mean, I really think 100%. that the, the idea that, you know, in this McKay-Coppins mm-hmm. story in The Atlantic mm-hmm. really underlines this. I think people who haven't been following this, mm-hmm. like you and, and I've been following it for many mm-hmm. years, are going to be—they should all read this story because mm-hmm. the the use of, a, of the platform and the platforms mm-hmm. and mass media, which buys into it all too often— um, as a as a like a vector for disinformation mm-hmm. is harrowing right. really and the fact that I mean I get I'm, I'm fully on board with the Zuckerberg line that we can't be the arbiter of truth yes, but that, that doesn't mean that they can be the facilitator of untruths they yes. have to figure out that
2: that best balance. line I have heard it said well said David I'm gonna end on that say it again.
3: Oh, I, I just—it just came up. It came with that, up. That's that, great. Right. Just because
2: they don't want to be the arbiter of truth doesn't mean they can be the, the facilitator, facilitator of, of untruth. And that's the smartest thing I've heard in a long time. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Cara. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. David, where can people find you online?
3: Uh, on my Twitter, David A-K-A-Y-E. A K A Y E.
2: You're an excellent Twitterer.
3: Ah, well, thank you very. You're much. You're very good
2: at it. If you and where else can we find your work at the UN?
3: Yeah, so uh, at the UN, if you go to my website that the law school maintains, it's so freedex.org. So F-R-E-E-D-E-X dot O-R-G. You can <laughs> find all of our reports. Reports and various Press things. releases Very everything. important work
2: that Dave is doing. Thank you. If you, you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.